Welcome to episode two of The Abnormal Psychologist. Um, in this episode, we are going on a journey in the psychopathology time machine uh, to trace the history of psychopathology from ancient times to the present. Um, fitting for a history episode, the opening music today is from Sam Cooke, who had Memphis ties. Uh, anyways, let's go back to ancient times and talk about holes in the head. Uh, you know, here in the South and maybe elsewhere, people use the phrase, I need that about as much as a hole in the head. Uh, and that's to like express you really don't need something or you don't want to do something. Um, I think my grandma used to use this phrase. Um, I always sort of chuckle when I hear this phrase because it reminds me of trepanation. Uh, trepanation is probably one of the oldest surgical treatments for mental illness. Um, as we go through history, I want you to notice how treatments will start to turn away from bodily physiological treatments towards talk therapies and psychopharmaceuticals. We'll also start moving away from stigmatization of mental illness. Uh, anyways, trepanation is the ancient practice of drilling a hole in the skull. Skulls have been found all over the world with relatively precisely cut holes in them. Uh, until several hundred years ago, many psychopathologies were probably misattributed to moral or religious causes. And in many cultures, uh, trepanation was thought to release evil spirits from the skull. This sort of moral panic around psychopathology lasted over a thousand years, and there's possible mass psychogenic illness like the Strasbourg Dancing Plague of 1518. There's the French again, right? And the Salem Witch Trials, uh, which might have been due to ergot poisoning, um, and they were all or both attributed moral causes. Um, as barbaric as it sounds, trepanation is not something that's really gone away. It regained popularity in the 1960s and 1970s as a way to find enlightenment or to get high. People did it to themselves in a practice known as self-trepanation. So you'll hear it called tray panning. Um, I've also heard trepanning, uh, but tray panning is the way that I usually hear it pronounced. Um, you can watch a video of one of the more famous self-tray panners, uh, Amanda Fielding, online. It's kind of graphic, so fair warning. Um, and this brings up a point I meant to make in the last podcast. I'd like to have guests on these podcasts. A podcast with one person isn't really that interesting, and I have some friends and some fellow psychologists who I've bribed to be guests on future episodes, but wouldn't it be cool to have someone like Amanda Fielding as a guest? Again, fair warning, if you watch the video, it's pretty graphic, and uh, it doesn't look very sterile what she's doing with that drill. Um, anyways, tray panning is still sort of around um, through neurosurgery. Right? We have craniotomies, and those are pretty routinely done. They involve drilling a burr hole into the skull. Um, they can be done for uh, different purposes. One of the more common reasons that they're done is for decompression to relieve uh, intracranial pressure. Um, anyways, uh, I guess we'll fast forward in time um, from the ancients to the mid 20th century because uh, I want to distinguish trepanation from lobotomies. Uh, lobotomies were more precise than trepanation um, and they were meant to sever nerves in the brain. Uh, most commonly, the nerves in the front part of the brain. Um, that type of lobotomy is known as a prefrontal lobotomy. Um, these were actually pretty uh, fairly effective at uh, reducing agitation, um, but there's some obvious side effects that go along with them. Uh, they reached their peak in the 1950s, and probably the most famous person associated with lobotomies is Igor Moniz. Um, and he even won the Nobel Prize in the 1950s. Um, Moniz is commonly associated with performing lobotomies, and the most prominent recipient of a lobotomy is Rosemary Kennedy, uh, and I plan on talking about her in a future episode when we discuss developmental disabilities. All right, back in the time machine, let's rewind back to ancient Rome. 
again, with supernatural explanations for psychopathology. The ancient Romans blamed certain mental health conditions on the moon. Uh, and the moon was known as Luna in Latin, hence the term lunatic. Um, side note, research doesn't really show that full moons lead to a substantial increase in emergency room or acute psychiatric care visits. Um, so that, that's a common myth. Um, for Roman history scholars, uh, there were likely many diagnosable conditions among emperors. We could probably have a whole podcast on uh, psychopathologies among Roman emperors, um, like Caligula, who made a senator a horse. Uh, Caligula means little boots in Latin. And Nero, who may or may not have played the fiddle as Rome burned down. Probably didn't do that. Um, then we reached the age of Christianity, where, again, up until a few hundred years ago, psychopathologies were ascribed religious causes. Uh, whipping, beating, and burning at the stake were possible treatment. I use treatment in quotation marks um, options. Um, humorism also existed until a few hundred years ago. Uh, humorism is the belief that mental illness was caused by imbalances in bodily fluids. Uh, we had bloodletting, sometimes through leeching or cupping. We still have cupping around today. Michael Phelps did it um, when he was swimming. Uh, to treat all sorts of medical conditions, including psychopathologies. Uh, so humorism said that we had four humors. Uh, one was yellow bile, which can make someone choleric, sort of like a go-getter extrovert type. Uh, we had red blood, which could make someone sanguine or sanguine, uh, which sort of sounds like choleric as these folks were outgoing and they were also risk takers, uh, maybe akin to some of the impulse control disorders like uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder that we'll talk about in a few episodes. Um, so we have yellow bile, red blood, and then water. Uh, water would make someone phlegmatic, which is basically being laid back and chill. Uh, and then we had black bile, which would make someone melancholic, which is brooding and sad. Uh, so I know this is a his history episode, but for the word nerds that are out there, right, uh, we have vestiges of humorism in our language. Uh, melancholy was actually used to describe depression until relatively recently. Um, if you go back and read about President Abraham Lincoln, um, who probably had what we'd call major depressive disorder today, um, he's described at the time as having melancholy. When we talk about major depressive disorder, we have an option to label it as with melancholic features, which means you are kind of like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, right? You have almost a complete absence of pleasure in everything. We'll call that anhedonia coming up. Um, and your mood doesn't brighten at all. Anyways, bad air or miasmas uh, were often thought to be the cause of physical and psychological ailments. In order to get, to get the humors back in balance, we had some very cruel treatments for psychopathology in the 16 and 1700s. We had these giant hamster wheels where you could put someone inside and have them exhaust the bad humors. Uh, we had the O'Halloran swing, uh, where a person could be placed inside a box and twirled around at over 100 revolutions per minute. And that way they could vomit up the bad humors. Uh, this would occasionally lead to brain hemorrhaging, though, which I guess would get rid of the sanguine humors. Um, luckily, we had some bright spots amid all of these dark treatments. If you, if you look at the seal of the American Psychiatric Association, and they use different seals sometimes, and I'm not really sure why, uh, but you'll see the picture of a man, and the man is Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush had some really cool monikers, like the American Hippocrates and the father of American medicine, uh, if they were to make another Hamilton sort of musical about someone other than Hamilton, uh, he would be a great subject. You know, maybe we could have like a Benjamin Rush musical set to the music of the band Rush. It'd be pretty awesome. Uh, 
I mean, the guy signed the Declaration of Independence, was an abolitionist, supported education, and especially women's education. Um, as ahead of his time as he was, though, Benjamin Rush still sort of ascribed to humorism in treating mental illness. He advocated purging techniques and spinning methods similar to the O'Halloran chair. Um, but at least he was sincere in trying to help people. Um, another bright spot in American history is Dorothea Dix. Uh, she's another person you could make an epic Hamilton musical about. So in early America, treatment for the mentally ill often involved hiding that person away, uh, chaining them away in an attic or basement. In many colonies and later states, you could receive money or a stipend for housing someone with a mental illness. But usually the conditions for these arrangements were deplorable. Uh, it wasn't really treatment, right? It was just stashing someone away. People with mental illness were also just put in jail. And while that sounds really barbaric, right, there is evidence that the American prison system today is the largest provider of mental health services. Anyways, these conditions bothered Dorothea Dix, and she advocated for treatment centers, hospitals, to treat the mentally ill. And this is really where you get the asylum movement from. We talk about Halloween and sensationalism of mental health. We talked about that in the last episode, right? Today, the word asylum probably uh, sends a shiver down your spine or up your spine. Is it shiver down your spine or up your spine? I have no idea. Anyways, um, but this movement started uh, out of compassion. So it was really a, a good thing when it started. Uh, and there were some precursors to the asylum movement. It didn't just spring up overnight with Dorothea Dix. Um, so the patron saint of mental illness is St. Dimphna. Um, St. Dimphna had a horrible story uh, associated with her. She was born in Ireland in the 16 or 600s. Uh, to a king. And as a girl, her mother died. Uh, her distraught father fell in love with her because she looked so much like her mom. And I promise we'll get into some Freudian stuff in future episodes. Um, Dimphna refused to have sex with her dad and fled to present-day Belgium. And after a few years, unfortunately, her father tracked her down. Uh, she refused to go back to Ireland with him, and then uh, he chopped off her head. So it's not the happiest ending. Uh, but it is still a bright spot, sort of. Um, the town of Belgium, where Dimphna fled, which is called Giel, uh, erected a church to her, and because of her association with mental illness, which wasn't really her mental illness, it was the mental illness of her father, uh, it became a refuge for people with mental illness all over um, Western Europe. And this was in the thir uh, like the 1300s, so it would have been 500 years before Dorothea Dix. Anyways, fast-forwarding back to Dorothea Dix, again, she sponsored legislation with Horace Mann, who you might remember from your American history courses. Horace Mann was a senator out of Massachusetts. Um, you have Horace Mann to thank for compulsory schooling, by the way, uh, the fact that you get in trouble if you don't go to school until you're, um, you know, you have to go to school until the age of 18, right? Uh, Mississippi, coincidentally, was the last state to adopt compulsory schooling. Um, I, when I was little, also, I was always afraid that some sort of uh, truancy police would come by when I was, like, sick as a kid. That's probably the origins of my anxiety disorder. Um, anyways, uh, Dix's bill, though, uh, which was called the Bill for the Benefit of the Indigent Insane, uh, was the only bill besides the Kansas-Nebraska Act uh, to pass both houses of Congress in, like, in 1854. Um, unfortunately, it was then vetoed by Franklin Pierce. Um, but Dix still helped to kick off the asylum movement and mental health. Um, and that asylum movement would last almost 100 years, right? If you travel around the country and you see an old asylum, uh, chances are it was probably built in the mid to late 1800s. Um, we have one about an hour east of here, um, uh, an hour east of Memphis, right, in Bolivar, if you go out Highway 64 for you Memphians out there. And it's called the Western Mental Health Institute. And it's a creepy-looking Victorian building and it still does some active clinical work. 
Um, many of the asylums performed lobotomies that we talked about earlier, and they became overcrowded and became crueler than the treatments that they were intended to replace. Um, so across the pond in England, I'll spare you my British accent, uh, we had the Bethlehem uh, Royal Hospital. It treated people with mental illness, and often there was noise from these treatments throughout the surrounding neighborhoods. It was really horrific. Um, Bethlehem, the word, became bastardized to bedlam. And uh, for the word nerds out there, right, bedlam means like madness and chaos. Uh, so another shout out to the word nerds today. Um, so the age of the asylum is going to last from the mid-1800s all the way up to the World War II era. After World War II, we enter into what we call the golden age of psychology. Lots of research and money are put towards mental health to treat um, returning veterans from World War II with shell shock. Um, we'll have an episode dedicated to post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, down the road. Uh, due to this research, though, we had the development of modern psychopharmaceuticals. Uh, in 1955, the first antipsychotic, uh, chlorpromazine, uh, which I know is Thorazine, uh, became widely available. And this is the beginning of the end of the asylum movement and starts the deinstitutionalization movement. Uh, where most people with mental illness were treated on an outpatient basis. In 1955, we had almost half a million people in institutional care. And then 15 years later, we had half of that number. And then another 15 years later, we had half of that number. Uh, so this seems like a really good, happy thing, right? We're sort of freeing people from the asylums. Uh, but there is a downside, and we call that downside the revolving door phenomenon. We become so dedicated to deinstitutionalization that it's really hard and expensive to get long-term inpatient care. As such, we have uh, many people we call frequent flyers uh, who are in and out of 24 and 48 hour acute psychiatric care maybe dozens of times in a year. Uh, and that's because they're never really getting the treatment that they need. Also, a lot of these people, many with uh, serious mental illness, SMI, right? get arrested and then incarcerated. And as I mentioned earlier, the American prison system is likely one of the largest providers of health services in the country. So we're tackling the revolving door phenomenon at present. Uh, what does the future look like? COVID-19 has really accelerated the telehealth movement where you see um, a mental health provider, you can see them remotely through your phone, a tablet, a computer. And this is super helpful in isolated places. Um, I think about Wyoming for some reason or the outer islands of Hawaii, where you might not have a psychologist or psychiatrist for hundreds of miles. Um, but I also wonder, is talking to a computer screen as effective as meeting in person? Um, there's probably something lost over the radio waves or internet waves or whatever. Anyways, it's probably better than nothing though, right? But it might work for certain psychopathologies um, we'll discuss in future episodes more so than others. Um, we'll also run into ethical issues related to confidentiality. Um, we can't just conduct these sessions over FaceTime or Skype. Um, we can't do that with clients because they're not HIPAA compliant and they're not properly encrypted. Anyways, um, we're reaching the end of this episode. Let's check the mailbag. And in the mailbag, we have nothing. Uh, remember, send your questions to ctaylo41 at cbu.edu with the subject line mailbag. In the next episode, we'll discuss what makes something a psychopathology, what exactly makes something abnormal. Until then, stay well, take care, and send me some mailbag questions. Bye.